welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... I think that's a really, really great opportunity we can have in our cities to make them not only friendlier spaces for nature, but also more beautiful places for people to enjoy and be within. An increasing number of cities around the world are committing to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But... What does the road to zero look like? This week we explore efforts to make cities healthier, cleaner places to live in. From the UK's first fossil fuel-free in-operation mixed-use development to utilising our rooftops in a better, more sustainable manner. And even the role of water when it comes to our most basic needs. Yes, we're talking sanitation. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The Bankside Yards development currently underway in London is the UK's first fossil fuel-free, in-operation, major mixed-use development. Now that's a bit of a tongue twister. But it's employing an innovative heating system which makes up a big part of the environmental efforts of the project, which is overseen by PLP Architecture, a firm that puts sustainability at the heart of their projects. Well, to explain all of this, I'm now joined by PLP Architecture Director Midori Ainura. Well, Midori, thank you for speaking to us today. Just to start with, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that PLP is doing and how vital this notion of sustainability is to what you're trying to achieve? I think sustainability is very core to us, the how we can make it impact master plan-wise and building-wise how possibly we can make first, so we don't make buildings which use energy first, then how we can make it uh, renewable energy to make up. And also embodied carbon-wise, how we can make building which doesn't use carbon. That's our challenge now. That brings us to this project you have here in London, Bankside Yard. So this is a huge piece of master planning, which is just across on the south side of the river. A large number of towers. It looks futuristic and perhaps the the silhouettes aren't that surprising. But what's happening within the buildings is surprising. Here's an example where you say you're going to be free of fossil fuels. How can you do that? I think this one is our ambition, not to use fossil oil into our buildings. And then 100% electric. I think it's not difficult to achieve. But I think more interesting one is the fifth generation energy grid then we can reuse the heat constantly. So third generation energy grid, like King's Cross, which emit heat in the environment, that make it hotter. Uh, fifth generation, we keep the heat and recycle it, for example, office heat, and create residential hot water. And tell me, how revolutionary is that? Is that the first time that it's being used at that scale in London? In UK, yes. And this is more like a common energy system in North Europe, and it's been used for 40 years. The UK is a bit behind, <laughs> so, and then this is the first major one. Now tell me, you're not just working here in the UK. As you, you told me earlier, you're working in, in Japan, you're working across Europe. Now, you have this huge project in Japan, which is, I think, Tokyo Cross. Is the ambition similar to here at Bankside, or is Japan moving at a faster pace on these issues? I think Japan is behind compared to Europe. Its uh, awareness is less compared to here. 
but we, we try to get operational carbon to zero. And then MVD carbon is a similar problem here, but the uh, restriction is easier than here. Tell me, in Japan, we, we have this idea that Japan has been very good at putting up often whole city blocks quite quickly, and then at the end of their lives, 20, 30 years, taking them down again and replacing them and reinserting a new city block, which looks amazing. But when you're talking about captured carbon there, for example, does something have to change in Japan? Because that can't continue, can it? Yeah, no, it can't continue. I think the mentality has to change. And then the attachment of the value attached to the land, not the building, that has to change with taxation or some other method, I think. Otherwise, they, because the economy was very low after the 90s, the sort of cyclicality helped economy going. But that cannot go on. It's huge building, and the earthquake, the, the structure is really sound, right? Each building. But demolish? I think that has to have some restriction over it. When we look at the project at Tokyo Cross, tell us a little bit about the scale of that project and what you're trying to achieve. It's a six-hectare project, and then together with we have a 16-hectare public park in front of it. And so next master plan next to it, together is 32-hectare scale, which connecting all business districts, government area, Kasumigaseki, Ginza, and behind us. So the connectivity, as uh, social-wise, the people connectivity, are uh, also green-wise, we want to connect together. Because our environment is very difficult to create a big patch of green. We need to mitigate uh, sizes with numbers. So as you begin to connect these places, is the idea to build corridors then of greenery that will encourage people, I think lots of people do walk in Tokyo already, but encourage more people to be pedestrians rather than jumping in a taxi or jumping in a car? Yes, I think a more pedestrian-oriented centre city, which is Tokyo is not now, and can be possible. And also uh, Tokyo has sort of a circular network system. So if we can connect nicely and the impact can be connected together, when environmental patch is connected, much better impact for biodiversity and also heat island, also air quality. You have, as you said, projects around the world. Where do you see the, the most embracing of this ambition? Who's the most forward-thinking of the places that you're working in? I think the Milan project, Park Romana, is quite ambitious and it's 22-hectare master plan. And if it's, for example, Italy, if it's Plaza, it's a stone-paving Plaza, right? Now we put the forest in it. So it's almost hi, can I cover in? The human side is with come into nature side. That kind of big shift of the development ideas, I think it's uh, very welcome and uh, we need it. Tell me, for developers and even for citizens, for many people they see, they know that this change has to happen, but it seems quite a tough demand sometimes that people think it means, you know, what's going to happen to my car and you know, is my life not going to be so nice? But you're describing here moments of beauty in the city and enchantment if you walk into a town square and it's a forest. Mm-hmm. Do you think that when we think about achieving sustainability goals, that this notion of delivering it in a, an aesthetic way and giving back to the people in a city is important to bring people along on this important journey? I think so, because we are calling this like a life-centric approach, not just human-centric, everybody talking, 
but uh, together with environment, both human and nature center approach. So whatever we do, environmentally good, therefore good for human as well. So this Pacromana also is not just central plaza, it's a productive green and then a constructive wetland. That's kids enjoy, the family enjoy, right? Perhaps finally, you could just tell me you know, that I'm always impressed when I meet people like yourself, you know, that architecture, master planning, we have visions in our minds of what people do, sitting at a board, drawing nice buildings. But just the technology that you have to be aware of these days and the opportunities to capture carbon, to not release heat. Has your job changed over the years? Do you feel that you're, you have to be increasingly technically minded and, and aware of new developments in science as you produce buildings? I think that I studied environmental engineering back in the 90s in Tokyo and I studied design in US. <laughs> so I have a slightly different view of that. And then how people willing to implement, that's most important. Because uh, engineering is very advanced, even back in the 90s. Everybody tried to make it sustainable back in Tokyo. But when I came back 20 years later, nothing happening. Because it's economy as that, and it doesn't try to implement those things. The final is coming now. I think, it's a, of course, scientific Technology advancement is important, but the system to place that one into the real place, that's more important, whether that's more governmental requirement or incentive from industry or investment. Midori Ainura, Director of PLP Architecture there, thank you for joining us. One of the pillars when thinking about sustainable cities is how we use, manage and respect natural resources. And one of the most precious of these is water. At this year's Venice Architecture Biennale, the Finnish pavilion will be hosting an exhibition looking at ways we can rethink the flushing toilet and redesign how sanitation works in our urban environments. Well, I'm joined now by the curator of the pavilion, Aria Rennell, and the Chief Design Officer of the City of Helsinki, Hannah Harris. Thank you both for joining us. Aria, perhaps I can start with you. Can you explain to our listeners what the idea is for the Pavilion of Finland at this year's Venice Biennale? We're presenting the Finnish Husi at the Venice Biennale, at the Finnish Pavilion, which is a traditional dry toilet from Finland. But not only are we doing the presentation of the HUSI, but actually we're opening up the dialogue about the larger questions, which are to do with nutrient cycle and, of course, saving water in sanitation infrastructure. So before we move on, just explain to people, you say the traditional dry toilet. How common is this a fixture of Finnish homes and society? It's a very common fixture at summer cottages, which in Finland number about half a million so uh, most Finnish people will have experience of using a horsey. So not really at domestic homes or urban areas, but in the countryside and at summer cottages, very, very common. Now, we, we can't avoid but getting a little bit gritty here. So the British, bless us, would probably have a cesspit or something. You then had to have cleared out at some juncture. But here it dries out itself and becomes compost. Basically, yes, it's a composting toilet these days. There's been um, technological development since the 90s. So they're actually very user-friendly these days. They don't smell. There's good ventilation and they produce ready compost. Yes. 
Now, obviously, the word dry there hints at why they're also a good thing, that you're not requiring additional water resources to be used to flush this material away to a plant where then it has to get treated. Is this the most damaging thing about the modern toilet that you wish to highlight? Well, I think that depends where you are globally. So, of course, we know that the lack of water resources is an alarming question in many areas globally. But equally alarming is other nutrients that we're returning back into the waterways. So even if you treat sewage, there's always, well, depending how well you do it, it's of course, it's very expensive and energy intense. So you're always returning nutrients back into the natural waterways, and that's causing eutrophication, and that's hugely damaging to the water ecology. And just before I bring Hannah back in, just tell me, returning to our toilet, so the, the material, the compostable material these days, does that have a use? Because you're saying that we should be careful where these nutrients go. Can human compost be then used on land, for example? Absolutely. Well, at the moment, also the wastewater sludge from the current sanitation systems can be composted and used. So that's already, for example, being done in Helsinki. But definitely the horse compost is even much better because you haven't been using the chemical cleaning products that you are using at these industrial wastewater sites. So the nutrients are actually in a better form for plants to make use of them. Well, Hannah, we've been hearing there some of the history of these toilets. Now, what's fascinating is that while they may have been in rural areas and country cottages up to now, the city of Helsinki has, as part of the kind of promises that are going with this exhibition at the Venice Biennale, saying that they will add a network of 63 waterless composting toilets across the city's public parks. Can you explain a little bit about the thinking behind this decision? Yes, so in Helsinki, we have a tangible example of the kind of ideas that Arya and the rest of the Dry Collective are talking about, which is, in a way, a kind of early adaptation, or if you wish, an updated reused version of what this traditional dry toilet means and we call it simply Helsinki Husi. This is a facility that we have designed and implemented for using in outdoor recreational areas in Helsinki and at the moment we have two of them. It's quite a new facility and there is huge demand to grow the network to up to 100 facilities. Aria, we know that there's a lot of encouraging needing to be done to move people into the right mindset about being sustainable, finding solutions, and sanitation obviously is a key one. But what are some of the other solutions connected to sanitation that you're going to be positing in Venice? We very much recognise that this is an issue which comes on top of climate change and other urgent issues. People are quite overloaded maybe with a lot of the crises, planetary crises at the moment. But we want to bring in this discussion about not only water, saving water, which is, of course, very urgent, but also the nutrient cycle, which is possibly more complex and more difficult for people to understand. And it's maybe something that's not been discussed very much in the media so far. And Hannah, that's an important point. Maybe people are a bit queasy about talking about toilets and thinking about that so much. It's not such a an appealing part of the story, maybe, for some people. But I know that Helsinki has this great reputation about doing things sustainably. It's pushing to reach net zero as a city. How vital is this debate about sanitation to reaching that goal? I think the exhibition and the work that the Dry Collective is doing highlights really important questions for our future. And there are certainly solutions also in an urban scale that we all need to be looking into in the future. 
What we have done in Helsinki at the moment with Horsi, it's currently a kind of a humble example, but what's really interesting is there, and it's a really kind of an example of the testbed thinking and what we can discover already with this sort of work that we've been doing now. And, and it connects very much to the whole idea of circular economy and how we're trying to do that in general in, in many areas at the moment. For instance, in the case of Horsi, we are able to use the compost material back in urban landscaping in the city and other areas. And there's certainly ways to scale that work up tremendously in the future. And just tell me, again, coming back to Helsinki, what are some of the other big projects and proposals that are happening in the city at this time to reach that net zero target? Yes, we have uh, ambitious climate work going on, and that obviously goes from many things, uh, ranging from transport to how we build and how we reuse materials and what kind of cycles we are able to do at the moment. So we are working, I mean, we recently moved our climate targets to being carbon neutral by 2030 instead of 2035, which is really a goal that is shared across the city. And obviously, when you're in an urban area that's simultaneously growing, these are tricky balances to strike. But the work, for instance, shown in this exhibition is a great example of the kind of stuff that we can be doing as well in the future. And Aria, finally, can you tell me, for people attending the pavilion, is there a chance they can uh, have a go on a Husi while they're there? So yes, we will actually have a horsey in the Finnish pavilion, but it's not functional. So what we want to show is for people to be able to kind of explore the technology and see how it looks and how it works. So if it was functional, maybe that wouldn't be so appealing. Aria Rennell and Hannah Harris there, and my thanks to them both. Finding spaces in our cities to give back to the environment will be a challenge all over the globe as the race for densification only increases. So how could we use our rooftops for good when it comes to sustainability? Monocle's David Stevens heads to the top floor to take a look. Space in our cities has never been more at a premium than today. As urban populations and density continue to rise, so too does the need for space that is giving back to its population, and perhaps more importantly, giving back to the climate. This drive is especially pronounced when discussing efforts to reach net zero emissions. How can we find space for climate-conscious decisions to be realised? Where can we fit a solar panel? How can we plant more carbon-catching green space? How can we provide ways to better store and recycle water? All of these questions can be answered simply by looking up. Rooftops are heavily underutilised in cities as spaces where urban greening can occur, and one property investment firm who has taken notice of this opportunity is London-based Fabrics. My name is Clyde Nicholl, the CEO of Fabrics, a company we started six and a half years ago to bring together architecture, finance and technology in an intelligent way to enhance our urban environments. In our urban environments, rooftops across major cities a huge opportunity is for us to really allow architecture to flourish and create environments for both humans and for nature. I think what we've seen historically is people design buildings, they really care about the physical architecture, so the facades, um, the interiors, and then often the rooftops are an afterthought where the mechanical and engineering equipment is often located, particularly in London. We've almost become so used to it, looking across the city and seeing grey rooftops, we've never really challenged what those rooftops might be. And I think looking at those rooftops and enhancing the way we use them 
is a way to really make our cities flourish, not only from an architectural point of view, from a sustainability point of view, but also actually think about nature for nature's sake, rather than using nature purely for the enjoyment of humans, which we tend to be pretty bad at within our urban environments. I think the great opportunity with rooftops around the greening and trees, you know, so actually adult trees in the way that they grow, they change, they change with the seasons. You've effectively got an opportunity to weave that into the architecture of a building. And through the seasons, the building changes. So I would encourage architects to think about how does nature weave into the physical fabric of the building that they're creating to then change and provide that kind of delight through the seasons of greenery and then leaves falling and changing of colours. I think that's a really, really great opportunity we can have in our cities to make them not only friendlier spaces for nature, but also more beautiful places for people to enjoy and be within. Projects like Fabric's Roots in the Sky, a rooftop forest in the London borough of Southwark, shows the power of reimagining the space above a building while also allowing businesses who move in a chance to make good on net zero efforts. The building itself covers a 1.4 acre site with 100% site coverage. And I think that's the key thing, that you have a building that sits 100% across its site that doesn't naturally give any space at ground level for nature. So for us, he was looking at it and saying, if land economy and value of land is probably going to dictate that developers in the future want to cover as much land as they possibly can with buildings, then how are we actually going to create any space for greenery or nature? So from that, we very quickly, you know, as a first point of principle for the scheme, said we want to have a forest across the roof. London, under UN definition, actually qualifies as an urban forest that's with 23% canopy coverage. So we thought we would celebrate that across the building. And the brief to Harrisburg, the landscape architects we work with, was to deliver 23% canopy coverage across the building, which in the end results in over 125 mature trees. But the key thing was that we wanted to make sure that it was sustainable in the form of being lower maintenance, but allowing nature to live in an environment that it felt comfortable with you know, it would be a lot easier and cheaper to put trees in pots they'd usually probably die after three years need you know a lot of work in the interim to maintain them and then effectively just be thrown away or chopped up or whatever so with this building we have over a thousand tons of soil across the roof 125 trees 10,000 plants Within the 1.5 metre soil depth, which is a key factor to this, we also have a what's called the blue roof, which allows the actual soil and the roof area to act as a natural water table. There's a couple of things that, you know, not only is it beneficial for the trees that live there to live in a normal environment, but also it reduces flash flooding in the local area by 30%. So we're effectively creating greenfield runoff rates at the top of a building, which again, if you think of the urban challenges that we have across our cities in terms of flooding, that is becoming more and more and more prominent. And the older cities in Europe, it's very difficult for them to upgrade their infrastructures to deal with the amount of water or unpredictable weather that we'll be facing. 
One city well aware of the potential which rests atop their buildings is Rotterdam, who owe their bounty of flat roofs to the events of the Second World War. My name is Leon van Geest. I'm one of the two directors of Rotterdam Rooftop Days and one of the founders. Rotterdam Rooftop Days is a festival which informs local citizens of the space waiting for them on rooftops and encourages them to celebrate the social potential they offer. But beyond just allowing the possibility to commune with others, Leon recognises the important role rooftop developments can play in climate ambitions too. They can provide opportunities for green space, and with that they can enhance biodiversity in cities, and I think that's the main issue at hand here. But apart from the biodiversity, which is very nice for all the plants and all the birds and bees, it's also very good for humans to live in a green environment, and I think that that's very underestimated in city life, how much green does improve your life just to be around green. But there's also a thing which we have a lot of here in Rotterdam is rain. And as we all know, due to climate change, it's going to rain more and it's going to rain harder. In Rotterdam, when it rains very hard, the streets are flooding, not really totally flooding, but sewers are rising and there are parts of streets that are underwater. And the municipality can do two things. They can make bigger sewers or they can utilize rooftops to keep the water as a kind of storage for a few moments. So we have now what we call smart rooftops and they're like a sort of water storage and they're linked to the internet and they know when it's going to rain. And when they know, oh, there's a heavy rainfall coming, they let all the water that they store go. So they have room to store new water so the sewers won't flood. So the whole industry now is not talking only about green rooftops, but they're always talking about green-blue rooftops. Some municipalities are more supportive than others when it comes to opening up roof space to development. But when making a public or private case for these projects, it ultimately comes down to value. What's the value of a building? What's the value of the building for the city? And that differs in different circumstances. So, for example, if you have a building owner that has a residential building, he knows that if he can add a rooftop terrace where there's a joint space for the residents, the value goes up. And if you want a nice place for the resident, they want also a green space. And that's for the value for them. The same, of course, is with solar panels. But the value for a city can be that they don't need to enlarge in the sewers. So you always have to think, what's the value of a specific kind of rooftop? This year's Rotterdam Rooftop Days will be held from the 1st to the 4th of June, showing the power that cultural activation can have in changing the public perception of a space. We have very, well, what we call light programming in the way that we see rooftops mainly as a new public space for people to be in. So we think about simple things, okay, what is a really nice public space? I think that a park is a nice public space, but also a place where people can play or I like really the Parisian parks where there are uh, people playing chess. So we have a rooftop and there are just kids playing chess there all day. So when you come up, it's not a big tar rooftop, but you say, oh, this is a really nice way for kids to be outside and to do something. So we have like 60 rooftops and on all rooftops, uh, things are happening or people are explaining what could be the value of this rooftop. This year, we're going to the south of Rotterdam, and there's a really big public transport hub, and there's a really big shopping mall that has been there since the 70s. And it has, on top of it, a rooftop of over 45,000 square meters. So we want to give that space back to the people living there. And the way we 
do that is we build a big pathway over that big rooftop and we convince the owner to give us the permission to use everything as a canvas for artists. So we invited over 40 artists from the south of Rotterdam to make a really big art exhibition by painting the roof and all the objects in it. And the path that goes on the rooftop is over a kilometer long. So you have a kilometer long yellow brick road lying on a shopping mall and 42 artists are applying artworks there. And we think that will create a new way on public space in what it could be if we use it right. For Monocle, I'm David Stevens. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlos Rebello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's with Zero. Thank you for listening, city lovers.